Two weeks ago, as I began this series of sermons from Paul's letter to the Christians at Rome, I shared how in the preface to his commentary on this grand letter, Martin Luther described Paul's letter to the church at Rome as the purest gospel. And I've chosen to use that as part of the title for this series of sermons that I'm doing. This morning, I want to begin by honoring a man by the name of Jack Cottrell. A great man of God, scholar, prolific writer, longtime teacher at Cincinnati Christian Seminary Bible College. Uh, this was a tough week. Because on Friday, Jack lost his battle with cancer. I shared with Jesse this morning, I said, you know when I did my sermon notes, it was early in the week. And I had already included this quotation. I don't know why. But I had already included this quotation that I wanted to share with you this morning. And I've probably only used things that Jack has written maybe a few other times in the last decade. But this week, as I was thinking about it, uh, this came to mind. Not knowing that Jack would lose his battle on, on Friday morning. Here's what Jack wrote in the commentary that he wrote on Romans. God's Word is a lamp to our feet and a light for our path. And no part of it shines more brilliantly than the book of Romans. The truth of God's Word sets us free. And Romans teaches us the most liberating of all truths. God's Word is sharp and piercing like a sword. And no blade penetrates more deeply into our hearts than Romans. Overall, the book of Romans may be the most read and most influential book of the Bible, but sometimes it is the most neglected and most misunderstood book. Last Sunday, we were blessed to have Antonio and Jenny Gomez with us. And to hear Antonio share a message that was titled, Written for Us which was based on the words of Paul that Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. I shared with you two weeks ago that it was in the midst of his final missionary journey during three months that he stayed at Corinth that Paul most likely wrote the letter to the Romans. Not with his own hand. As he states in 1 Corinthians, Colossians 2, 2 Thessalonians, and Galatians, all of those places he says, I wrote this with my own hand. But in Romans, he didn't write it with his own hand. In fact, he wrote it with the assistance of an amanuensis, that's kind of like a secretary, who was named Tertius. And we know from chapter 16, verse 23, that Paul was apparently staying at the house of Gaius, one of his converts there at Corinth. And we also know that the letter was carried from Rome, or to Rome, I mean, by Phoebe, a female leader, whom Paul refers to as a deacon from the church of Kentria. 
That's in chapter 16, verse 1. We are also given a threefold description of who Paul is writing the letter to in verse 7 when he writes to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. First, notice how Paul emphasizes that they are loved by God. God's own dear children. Now I want you to do something. I want you to verbally out loud right now say God loves me. I think sometimes we question that. We doubt that. And we need to hear that. We need to hear that God loves us. And it's because of God's self-giving love that the gospel and therefore the church even exists. In fact, when we come to chapter 5 of Romans, we're going to see that Paul stresses that God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That Christians are loved by God is not a truism, but a truth that we should receive with both awe and wonder. Secondly, they're called. The call of the rank and file of the Roman church balances what Paul has already talked about, reminding them of his own calling. Great leaders are called. But then, as Paul will often stress, so are all of God's people. Just as Paul was called, just as the Christians at Rome were called, you and I, are also called by God. In the words of Jesus, God the Son, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden. We're called. And we're called to be saints. Now Paul's already stated in verse 6 that we're called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now, however, even those Gentile Christians who were there at Rome were called saints. And that was a regular and common Old Testament designation for Israel, the Jewish nation. You see, Paul is setting the stage for what he's going to come back to later and often in his letter, but especially in chapters 12 to 16. Biblically speaking, most dictionaries are wrong. Let me say that again. Biblically speaking, most dictionaries are wrong. Because saints are not just canonized, holy, virtuous people who have died and are in heaven. That's the number one definition that I saw when I looked it up in three different dictionaries. According to the Bible, and what's important for you and for me to know, is that we are all, all of us as Christians, without exception, we're called by God to belong to Christ and to be saints. What that means is to be set apart, to be holy. 
So Paul can address the Christians at Corinth as those who were called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian, you are a saint. So now, God loves me, I am a saint. Let's say it. God loves me, I am a saint. Loved, called, set apart. Terms of endearment. Now is it any wonder that our text for today is going to begin with Paul saying, I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you? I mean, he's already said you're loved, called, and saints. Paul viewed them as treasures. But that was because of what he believed was a greater treasure. And the title of my message this morning is A Treasure Called Faith. Now last Sunday, Antonio had us think a little bit about what we might like, especially in terms of what we might like that others don't like. And the image I want to use this morning to help us focus involves pushing Antonio's question to a deeper level. Not just what do you like, but what do you treasure? What are some of the things that you value so much? People or possessions? What are some of the things that you value so much that you're willing to sacrifice time, money, or energy? Let me ask you this. If you found what could be identified as a verifiable treasure map, what would you do? Would you keep it secret and hide it away so that nobody would ever know about it? Even if you were absolutely sure it contained directions to a real treasure? Jesse and I had the opportunity to go through the Titanic display down in Pigeon Forge. That contained items that the man who actually did the expedition with the submarines who went down found and brought back. He owns that whole exhibit down there in Pigeon Forge. He wanted to share what he found with others because he had come to the belief that he could identify where the Titanic sank and in fact he did find it and found those treasures and brought them back. So here's my question for you this morning. Do you view faith as a treasure? I mean, you realize that you have been given a map that tells you how to obtain the greatest treasure of all time. A map that leads to the treasures of abundant life and eternal life. I hear people all the time saying, Oh, I just... I'm, I'm having such a hard time. Things are so tough. I said, Have you read Psalms? David had some pretty tough times. And he shares about it. In fact, at times he even gets angry with God. Have you read Psalms? I don't know. Have you read Lamentations? Where the people were so distraught because of how things were going that they cried out, they lamented to God. Have you gone to the treasure map 
to find the help that you can have for the tough times you're going through. It's no wonder that Paul viewed the beloved and called saints at Rome as treasures and begins with an exclamation of thanksgiving. So let's do a little digging into the text. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow my God, by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often tried, intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word. I thank my God. Without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. Paul was a man who believed in the power of prayer. And it showed in his life and in his ministry. You want to talk about tough, hard times? From what we found through excavations, the jail in Philippi where he was put wasn't a nice building with beds and cots and all of the stuff the jails have today. It was a hole in the ground with bars over the top of it where if he got any food at all, it was dropped into him. And the bathroom that he had was that area right over there beside him in the pit. And yet in that prison he could say, I rejoice, I rejoice always. Again I rejoice. Let me tell you a quick story about a man named Ernest Hunter Ray. He was my father's mentor in ministry. My dad was a truck driver with three kids, but on weekends he would go and help out Ernest Hunter Ray at the church where he was serving there in Buffalo, New York. When Ernest Hunter Ray passed away, and by the way, some of those real old books in my office that some of you have seen up on that other shelf and in that one that has the closed are from Ernest Hunter Ray's library. They got passed down. When he died, and they went in to clean out his office, over on one side of the office was a little table with a Bible and a notebook. And in front of the table, on the carpet, were two oval, worn-out areas of carpet. He was not to be bothered in the morning until he opened his door and he was on his knees in prayer 
praying for the congregation, praying for Him in terms of God speaking through Him. And it showed in His ministry. (coughs) My dad is a direct result of Ernest Hunter Ray's ministry. Because of my dad, I am a part of that chain as well as our son now, Eric. Paul thanked God for the treasure of these Christians at Rome. But notice three things in particular with me this morning. The first thing that he thanked them for, he was thankful for, the first treasure that he recognizes is how the faith of these Christians at Rome was being proclaimed in all of the world. Now, allowing for a degree of legitimate hyperbole, it was still true that wherever the church had spread, the news about these Christians in the capital city of Rome spread also. Right there under Caesar's eye, they were worshiping the God who created the world. And although Paul had not been responsible for bringing the gospel to them, he didn't start that church, that didn't keep him from giving thanks that Rome had also been evangelized. And remember, and I'm going to keep coming back to this, this is a letter. It's not a compendium of Paul's theology. If it was, there's a serious problem because he leaves out any doctrine of the church. He is writing a letter to deal with problems that were going on at Rome. And it takes him a full 11 chapters of background, theological background, to build the foundation, the basis for what he needed to say to them. But it's a letter. And we need to note that in keeping with first century letter writing, there was always a pious expression that would usually be found at the beginning of, of the letter. It might be a prayer that things go well with the recipients of the letter, or perhaps even a thanksgiving for blessings received. But Paul makes meaningful use of that stylistic feature. In fact, you'll find a thanksgiving at the beginning of every one of Paul's letters except Galatians. The only letter that he doesn't begin with the word of thanksgiving. In fact, Galatians begins with, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to a different gospel, a gospel of another kind. He's not happy with them. But here, Paul begins with thanksgiving. And it's not surprised, uh, surprising to find him praying for these converts. But it's interesting that he, he didn't know them other than a handful that he'll mention. Clearly, his prayers were wide-ranging. But they also expressed some of the intensity of feeling with which he had longed to visit Rome and to work among the Christians there and to preach the gospel to the heathen. But the opening treasure is praise for the fact that those Roman Christians had a positive and a commendable reputation at at that time. Their faith was known and proclaimed everywhere. 
So here's my first question. Do you think that's what this church is known for? When people talk about this church, do you think they're talking about oh, uh, their faithful lives? Not some of the stories I've heard in the six years that I've been here. By the way, did you notice that Paul begins with first, but never gets around to a second? Probably due to a combination of things, but I mean, he, he begins really excited writing this letter. The first seven verses that we went through two weeks ago, that's one sentence in the Greek. Seven verses, one sentence. But probably it's also due to the fact that, again, he's, he's writing and dictating to this secretary, this amanuensis, uh, and that's a procedure that doesn't always make for smoothing out some of the grammatical irregularities that occur. But first, he's thankful that the news of their faith is being proclaimed. A second treasure to be found is that their faith was mutually encouraging. There's no question that Paul's ministry, preaching and praying go together. He assures them that even through, even though most of them are unknown to him personally, he intercedes for them constantly, verse 9, at all times, verse 10. And I don't think that's simply platitude. I think he's telling the truth. And he calls on God to witness his statement. In particular, he prays that now at last by God's will, that is, if it is his will, the way would be open for him to come to them. It's a humble, tentative petition. He presumes neither to impose his will on God, nor to claim to know what God's will may be. Sometimes those are the toughest things we experience, aren't they? We pray to God, believing in faith that we know what's best. And we pray to God saying, God, you need to do this. And then we get upset if that's not what God chooses to do. Prayer is not a way to hold God hostage. Instead, Paul submits his will to God's. And when we reach chapter 15, we're going to consider how his prayer was in fact answered. But at this point, he longs to see them and he tells them why. <coughs> Excuse me. Verses 11 and 12. That I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. <clears throat> he appears to be using the word gift here in a, in a more general sense. Perhaps he's referring to his own teaching or exhortation, which he hopes to give to them when he arrives. Although, 
there is what appears to be a, an intentional indefinite aspect to it. Possibly because at this stage, he doesn't know what their main spiritual needs are even going to be yet. No sooner though, has he dictated these words, than he seems to sense the inappropriate one-sidedness as if he has everything to give and nothing to receive. Did you notice that? So he immediately explains. In fact, even corrects himself by saying, oh, that is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. He notes about the importance of mutual reciprocal blessings of Christian fellowship. And although he is an apostle, He's not too proud to acknowledge his need for that kind of blessing and encouragement. You might not like this, but you know, I, I feel compelled by the Spirit. Nobody needs to know your criticisms your bitterness, your bitter talk. They need to know the positive. And I know every one of you at some point has had someone say to you, if you don't have anything good to say, keep your mouth shut. Why can't we learn that lesson? Why do we always have to say the negative? The corrective. Why can't we be uplifting and encouraging? And Paul realizes right away, he said it wrong, he needed to correct it. He needs their blessing as much as he needed and wanted to give them blessing. And there is no greater blessing, it's a real treasure, than to be in a relationship with another Christian that's mutually encouraging and uplifting. To have that significant person that you can study with, that you can confess your faults to, that you can pray for and pray with. The third treasure I see expressed in our text for today has to do with the recognition that what they have is a faith that is entrusted. Why had he tried to visit them? The Apostle now makes three strong personal statements about his own anxiety to preach the Gospel in Rome. Verse 14, I'm under obligation. In other words, I'm bound. Verse 15, I am eager. And next Sunday we'll address the third. I'm not ashamed. But now as he gives a third reason for his thanksgiving in order that I may reap some harvest among you, that word harvest is literally fruit. And the idea expressed is that of gathering fruit. In other words, he hopes to win some converts in Rome. Just as among the other Gentiles that he had been to and served. In fact, it would surely be appropriate since Paul himself saw himself as the apostle to the Gentiles that he would engage in evangelistic reaping there in the capital city of the Gentile world. But notice in verse 14 that he terms this an obligation, a debt. Paul had not borrowed anything from the Romans which he needed to repay. 
But Jesus Christ had entrusted him with the gospel for them. He had something he was to pass on. I don't know about Indiana law. I didn't enforce Indiana law. I was a Kentucky law enforcement officer. But there was and there is a statute in Kentucky that is called failure to make required disposition. In other words, failure to give somebody what was given you to give to them. And it's under the theft statutes. You're given something to give to somebody else and you don't give it to them. In Kentucky, that's stealing. In the Bible, that's failing to do what the obligation is that we have been given. We are debtors. Paul was a debtor by committing the gospel to his trust. He was in debt to the Romans. We are debtors to the world, even though we're not apostles, as Christians. As we saw when we studied the Great Commission, we have been entrusted to make disciples as we are going about living in the world. You are to be a disciple maker. Not just people like myself that you hired us to work here. We are all ministers of the gospel given the obligation to make disciples. And Paul's primary incentive for going there was that obligation that he felt he needed to fulfill. Isn't it interesting how even with all the talk about debt and loan forgiveness, it's still pretty much universally regarded as a dishonorable thing to leave a debt unpaid. We're debtors. And Paul writes in Colossians, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. We had a debt, a record of debt that's been taken care of. And when we get to Romans 8, Paul's going to write, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We should be as eager to discharge our debt as Paul was to discharge his. We should feel that obligation to the, tell the person who is outside of Christ about the love that God has for him. And I am glad to hear what Deborah Debbie said. There's no reason why people shouldn't want to be packing the churches to hear about the good news and to feel the warmth and love that can be found. But too often, 
too often we are the ones who have driven them away. So here's the challenge for this week. Good news is for sharing. And here is a reminder from John Stott. We are debtors to the world, he said, even though we are not apostles. If the gospel has come to us, which it has, as Antonio shared with us last week, we have no liberty to keep it to ourselves. Nobody may claim a monopoly of the gospel. Good news is for sharing. We are under obligation to make it known to others. You know what's far more important? Far more important than political correctness? God's approval. You hesitate telling the good news to somebody because of political correctness. Oh, well, you know, they have what they believe, we have what we believe. <coughs> God says no. God says no. You are to share what is the way, the truth, and the life which Jesus said is the only way to the Father. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for this time again that we have to, to hear Your Word and hopefully to be convicted by Your Word. Help us to have a faith that is in fact proclaimed everywhere. Why, those Christians at, at First Christian Church at Brook, they are so strong. They are so faithful. They are so encouraging. They are so uplifting. They are so loving. Help us to realize the importance that our faith is to be one that's mutually encouraging. And help us also to feel the obligation, to feel the debt, to share that faith as stewards of your good news. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, this Sunday, we're singing uh, as our hymn of invitation, Where He Leads I'll Follow, number 388. So this time, I want us to sing the second verse because of the words that are contained within. Let's stand together and let's sing. Bless to His loving words Come unto me Weary, heavy, laden There is sweet rest for thee Trust in His promises Faithful and true Lean upon the Savior And thy soul is secure Where He leads all follow Follow all the way Where He leads all follow Follow Jesus every day. Well, God bless you all. Is there anything that we need to bring up in closing that might have gotten overlooked or needs to be stressed again? Again, ladies or guys, I cook. 
make sure we touch base with Kay so that we can make sure we got enough food both for the men's uh, fellowship. And by the way, ladies, all of the women are being invited to come to this meeting on Monday night, the 26th. Uh, that has been put out to all of the churches. It's not just going to be a men's meeting this time because uh, Jenny is also going to be with us. Antonio and Jenny and Antonio is going to be briefly sharing about the mission, but then he's going to be preaching the word as well. So that's Monday night. Meal starts at 7 o'clock uh, with moving quite quickly into the service. And then we're going to have visitation on Monday night, hopefully, uh, depending on the arrangements. And uh, Tuesday morning will be the services. Yes? On Monday morning at 9 o'clock, if there's anyone that has not made noodles before, we're going to have a noodle-making lesson, All right. whatever you want to call it. And if, if you'd like to learn how to make homemade noodles, Monday morning at 9 o'clock, if you'd like to help make noodles, because these are then uh, put out for sale and the money is used it goes directly into the King's Daughters account, every penny of it, for uh, taking care of funeral meals and other things like that, that that they do as a part of their ministry. So that's Monday morning at 9 o'clock. Now, the men's meeting is the 26th. That's yes. Monday, tomorrow. That's a week from that. Tomorrow is the Monday that we're doing the noodles. The noodles, yes. Okay. Just the men's meeting is a week from Monday, as well as... Uh, visitation 26 and funeral services 27. Anything else? Yes? This, this is in addition to our plan King's Daughter Noodle Making in, okay. in preparation. Okay, this is in this is in addition to and in preparation. This is just an opportunity to learn how to make homemade noodles. But they'll go into the, the yes. kitchen. Yes. Alright. Beverly. There's some tomatoes out here. Anybody would like some tomatoes, free to take. Whatever you want. All right. Tomatoes out here on the bench. Anything else? All right. Well, let's pray, and then we'll sing our closing chorus, Blessed Be the Tide of Bonds. Father God, thank you again for our time this morning. Help us to serve you in all that we say and do. Use us throughout this week. Help us to be those who have the positive commendation about our faith and the way we live. In Jesus', Jesus name we pray this. Amen. Bless be the time.